1962, I was a sophomore in college. Actually, a little hard to imagine 40 years ago. Uh, I was in a class called Physics for Poets. And there was sort of an attempt to educate uh, the liberal arts types in science. And it was taught by a, a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Part of the course, he decided to give us an assignment to write a short paper on gravity, what gravity was. Because although everyone is familiar with it, evidently from a scientific point of view, it's really not understood that very well, understood very well exactly what it is. So I, was, I think he was hoping for some you know, poetic insight to illuminate uh, the scientific community. So I wrote this three-page paper. I had this idea that maybe gravity was between two bodies was a falling into a point of emptiness. You know, there was just an emptiness between every two things, and gravity was simply the force of things toppling into emptiness. It didn't win me a Nobel Prize. <laughs> but I remembered that years later, not that many years later, actually about six or seven, when I was in India practicing, first getting into Buddhist practice and meditation with my teacher, uh, Munindraji, and beginning to get a first um, understanding of the Buddhist notion of emptiness. It was interesting to me that Munindra used the imagery, he said that it's very difficult for us to escape the gravitational pull of the world of our senses. Like we keep gravitating, we keep revolving around, you know, sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations and our thoughts and feelings. And we keep evolving around through the force of our desire for them, even when we see them continually changing. We're caught in that gravitational field. What happens as our practice begins to deepen we begin to either fall into or be drawn into or we relax into a different gravitational field, the gravitational field of the Dharma. We fall into or relax into an understanding of a different kind of emptiness, emptiness of self, emptiness of I, emptiness of ego. This then becomes the new force of gravity in our lives. We're pulled more and more into this empty essence, into this selfless center, becoming the new force of gravity in our lives. As we get glimpses of this, as we get intimations, through our experience of the selfless, empty center, in some very radical way, it becomes the awakening of faith for us. And faith is the sustaining energy of almost all spiritual paths, the energy which keeps us moving along the path, which sustains us along the path. We begin to understand that faith is not a choice we make. It's not as if we decide, oh yes, now I will have faith. Faith is a way of understanding. Faith grows out of understanding. And we use the word faith or confidence or trust. And they're all translations of the Pali word, satha. 
And all of those, faith, trust, confidence, they all refer to a feeling or a quality of the heart-mind that opens us, that has the power to open us to things greater than ourselves, has the power to take us out of our usual ego concerns, out of the gravitational field of the ego. So the power of faith that our hearts and minds actually open to a greater compassion, a greater wisdom than our normal conventional understanding. It's faith which is our initial inspiration to practice and it's also what sustains us in our practice. Now all of us here already have very strong seeds of sadha. This faculty is very strong in all of us. If it weren't, you wouldn't be here. A three-month course is not most people's idea of a vacation. (laughs) You know, it may seem perhaps very ordinary to you, you know, that you're here, and it might, on the other hand, seem you know, in your own self-reflection, that your faith is a little shaky, that you don't feel that much faith or confidence. But that's really a lot of self-delusion. Because just by coming here, you know, and making this commitment, it's for this period of time, six months, six weeks or three months, or six months, <laughs> I'm already thinking forest refuge. <laughs> It's like you've given up everything the world thinks is of value. I don't know whether you had the experience of trying to explain to someone who has never been on retreat exactly what you were going to do for these three months. Well, I'll sit and I'll walk. (laughs) And I'll sit and I'll walk and I won't talk to anybody. And Two and a quarter meals a day. Something brought you here. <laughs> you know, and that something is that very strong quality of faith, of confidence. So I think it's helpful and inspiring to recognize that. You know, that that is there. That is already a great strength that you have. It's interesting when we look back at, you know, what were the first seeds of faith within us? What first awakened that? When I look back in my own life, I see a whole series of different kinds of situations that helped awaken the faith. I think the very first time was, again, when I was at college, and just reading the Bhagavad Gita in some Eastern religion course. There was one line in it that just kind of jumped out at me. It said, and this was a refrain in that text, Act without attachment to the fruit of the action. Maybe I was like a sophomore or junior in college. I'd never been to the East, didn't know much about, didn't know anything about Buddhism. But somehow, you know, it's that line, the the wisdom of that somehow resonated. Act without attachment to the fruit of the action. It just felt like a great possibility of freedom in that. You know, it was kind of the first, oh, maybe there's another whole way of understanding my life, understanding the world. Sometimes faith is awakened when we come into contact with some person. Maybe it's a historical person, you know, like we read of the Buddha or other great beings, or some living person, you know, who embodies certain qualities for us. Might be qualities of great love or compassion or courage or selflessness or generosity, something that really shines, that really stands out. You know, we see it in them and we feel it and we get inspired. It's as if we get the scent of enlightenment and we get the scent of awakening. 
someone who does this for a lot of people, of course, today is the Dalai Lama. You know, and those of you who have had a chance either to see him or to be with him kind of are, are aware of the, just the extraordinary presence and humility and simplicity and kindness and just all these qualities you know, which we so admire and he so simply manifests them. And there are countless stories, of course, but one in particular stands out in my mind he was at, a, this was quite a few years ago, he was at a conference someplace in a uh, big hotel in Arizona, I think it was Phoenix. You know, and so many days of meetings and talks. And, and then as he was leaving the hotel, he asked the management to call all the staff of the hotel. You know, all the clerks and the people who made up the rooms and the, everybody, all the staff of the hotel. You know, and he lined them up in the lobby and he went down the line you know, he shaked everybody's hand with that amazing presence. You know, when you're with him, even for a moment, it feels as if you're the most important person in the world. That's the quality of the attention, you know, that he gives to each person. And it was so beautiful to even think of doing that. Now, how often do we move through our various situations without any thought to all the many people who make it possible. You know, and here's somebody who's incredibly busy and a lot of demand on him, taking the time. When we see that, and we come into contact with people like that, it does arouse faith in us. You see, this is a potential, this is a possibility. And it's so beautiful. In a more classical vein, there's a, there's a classical text, Buddhist text, it's called The Questions of King Melinda. And these are questions that it was a king descent, a Greek king in uh, Central Asia, who was actually kind of a descendant from the time of Alexander the Great's conquest of that area. Very interested in Buddhism and asking questions of Nagasena, who was an Arhant monk. And there's a book, a collection of these questions and responses, the questions of King Melinda. And in this book, there's one example of the power of faith to inspire others. The example given is of people standing on the shore of a flooding river. You know, it's really flooding and flooding their homes and threatening their lives. So a situation of a lot of chaos and dismay. And one wise person comes along and assesses the situation, sees what needs to be done, and through their own wisdom, crosses to the other shore in safety. And all the people running around on this shore see, oh, what can be done? This, This person has actually crossed to the other shore, and everyone follows. Well, in this, in this example, in this text, this shore, the flooding shore, is the world of samsara, is the world of our being lost in distraction, in desire, in grasping, and clinging, in all the dramas of our lives. The far shore is awakening. The far shore is liberation. When one wise person kind of gathers the strength to cross to the other shore, we see that. We see that it's possible, and it arouses faith in us. Yes, they can do it, we can do it. So the living embodiment, the living example, is so important in terms of our own inspiration. It really pushes on the boundaries of what we think is possible. There's a apt expression in English, really. When we talk about taking a leap of faith, maybe a better expression would be a leap through faith. It's faith which gives us the energy to take the leap, to go beyond our limitations.
perhaps in an even more powerful way, this quality of sata, of openness of heart to that which is beyond our usual ego concerns, arises most strongly through an awareness of suffering, through an opening to suffering. Now when we're faced with, with pain, or we're faced with distress, or we're faced with confusion, with uncertainty, and really in these very troubled and troublesome times, this is what's arising for a lot of people. There are two possibilities in the face of this uncertainty, the face of insecurity, the face of suffering. We either get more bewildered and more confused, kind of cycle downwards, more bewildered, or in the face of that suffering, we start to look for a way of understanding. The suffering itself becomes a wake-up call is there a way I can understand this? What is the meaning of this? Is there a way to find peace? Is there a way to find freedom in the midst of this? There's suffering that simply leads to more suffering, and there's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And it doesn't have to do with the external circumstances. It has to do with our own quality of faith, our own quality of openness, our own quality of investigation. It's interesting to watch you know, our own minds and our own responses in times of tremendous pain or difficulty. And to see, is that pulling us down into despair? Is it pulling us down into anger? Is it pulling us down into helplessness, into rage? All of that is suffering leading to more suffering. Or in the circumstances, whether it's in our personal lives or in the circumstances of the world outside, do they invoke in us, evoke in us, the energy of investigation. How can I understand this? What is going on? Is there a way out of this suffering? Who can guide me out of the suffering? We really begin to see even if we don't completely fully understand it yet, we begin to see that there is a way, that there is a path. And many beings have pointed it out, many beings have walked upon it. Mary Oliver, a great poet, she, she captures this moment, this strong moment of faith in the first two lines of her poem, The Journey. She says, one day you finally knew what you had to do and began. You know, we go through our lives and there may be the confusion, there may be the bewilderment, there may be the chaos, there may be the suffering. But one day we finally knew what we had to do and began. And that is this amazing journey that we're all on. the journey of understanding ourselves, the journey of understanding our own minds. Where does the suffering come from? It comes from greed, it comes from hatred, it comes from delusion, both in our own minds and in the minds of others. There is only one place to understand it. And that's the great power and the great beauty of coming together with the faith, with the commitment to look, to see. 
to really come to a deep understanding of it. At first, our experience of faith might be faith in someone or something outside of ourselves. Now, the, the oldest recitation of faith in Buddhism, going back to the time of Buddha himself, was the recitation of the three refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. That is a recitation of faith. The Buddha, that being, you know, who awakened. Sometimes, you know, when, when I come into the hall and see the Buddha image and just bow to the Buddha, of course that is on many levels, but just on the simplest, the very simplest level, I just imagine that it is actually the Buddha standing there, sitting there. You know, and just there's this amazing feeling of devotion that can arise in thinking of the accomplishment, the realization, the perfection of wisdom and compassion, a great being. We bow to that wisdom, we bow to that compassion. We take refuge in the Dharma, we take faith. We have faith in the Dharma, just the truth, the truth of things. Refuge in the Sangha, the community of beings walking on this path, any path of wisdom. But in a deeper meaning even, refuge and faith always comes back, points back to ourselves. We start with these outward manifestations. You know, it might be a book, it might be another person who inspires us, it might be the three jewels, the three refuges, as external representations. But as we practice, we see that real faith always turns back into oneself. As our practice unfolds, we make a very startling discovery. It was expressed by this one author. He was an English Taoist sage who went by the name of Wei Wu Wei. to call to mind what he said now. <laughs> what you are, let's say, it'll come. <laughs> the gist of it was <laughs> that what, he had a very pithy way of saying it, but the gist of it being that what we're looking for is within us. That which we're looking for is what is looking. And so this is the discovery that we begin to make, that it's not outside of ourselves. That awakening, that freedom, that peace, that the ultimate refuge is not outside. It's within ourselves. Well, that's a great turning point in our lives because most of the people in the world are just seeking something outside of themselves and, of course, endlessly unfulfilled. That is samsara. And it's only when we begin to turn our attention back in that which we're seeking is what is seeking. We turn in and in that we find a place of peace. In that we find a real refuge. The Buddha said it very directly and powerfully in his last words, in the Parinibbana Sutta, 
you know, which is the sutta of his last, his last days, just before his parinibbana, his full enlightenment, the death. Said, be islands unto yourselves, be refuges unto yourselves. Hold fast to the Dharma as an island. Hold fast to the Dharma as a refuge. Seek not a refuge in anyone except yourselves. That's a powerful message to us. It's within us. It's in this inward movement, you know, of faith and understanding. And it's not to the ego self. It's not taking refuge in the ego self. It's taking refuge into the empty selfless nature of this mind and body. Taking refuge in the zero center of gravity. It's only in this that enables us to embrace the suffering in the world. It's only emptiness that is big enough to hold all the suffering. Now there's a Zen poem by Ryokan, the Zen hermit monk of the 18th century, and a wonderful poet and monk and hermit, he wrote, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to hold all of the people in this floating world. Well, they are wide enough when there's no self in them. And that's the great union of emptiness and compassion. It's emptiness which makes that level of compassion possible. When we get a glimpse of this, this is the, this is the real meaning of refuge is the real meaning of faith. As we continue on this path of practice, the faith and the confidence that we begin with becomes much stronger. Becomes stronger based not on anything we hear, or read, it becomes stronger based on our own experience, our own direct experience of what is true. Begin to have this unshakable confidence in the truth of the moment, the actuality of the moment. What is happening right now? When we're not lost in the proliferation of concepts and ideas, and we simply are there in the moment's experience. Is there any doubt? There's no problem. We begin to see through our own direct experience into the very nature of our minds. What is a thought? And we're not lost in the drama, in the stories of our thoughts. But there's enough attention, there's enough mindfulness to look carefully. What is a thought? What is that phenomenon? What is an emotion? What is a sensation? We develop this tremendous confidence in our understanding of it. Because it's not conceptual, it's not discursive, it's not intellectual. It's our immediate direct experience. as you have undoubtedly experienced many times already, there is a tremendous immediacy of knowing in every moment of simple, uncontrived awareness. When you're sitting, sound of the dog barking, sound of a car, the sound of a bird, and you're just sitting and just hearing not lost in thought, not lost in the story, not lost in liking or disliking, just simply hearing. Is there any problem? Is there any confusion? Is there any doubt? Probably not. 
there's something very profound that is contained in this immediacy of knowing. Whether it's the knowing of the breath, the knowing of a sound, the knowing of a sensation, knowing of a movement. Because the immediacy of that knowing points very directly, and if we pay attention, we see it, it points to the innate wakefulness of our own minds. <coughs> points to the innate wakefulness of the mind, of awareness. And we learn to recognize this wakefulness. We learn to trust it, and we practice abiding in it. Milarepa, you know, who was the great 11th century Tibetan yogi, was you know, a fantastic yogi. He said, I attain all my knowledge through observing the mind within. Thus all my thoughts become the teaching of the Dharma, and apparent phenomena are all the books all the books one needs. It's all here. You know, as Manindraji said, sit and know you're sitting, and the whole of the Dharma will be revealed. Because there is that immediacy of knowing when the mind is undistracted, which points to this innate wakefulness of the mind. It's already within us, But as you have all noticed as well, there's a tremendous tendency towards distraction. We get pulled out, we get lost, we get distracted. And so this is our training, this is our practice, coming back again and again to the wakefulness of mind. This is the ultimate refuge of peace, of happiness, of understanding that is within us. There's another aspect of faith. It's not only our growing confidence in the actuality of the moment, but it's also a growing faith in the unfolding direction of our whole life's journey. And this is not a journey in time or in space. Because faith is about the direction of our life's journey of understanding, of growing wisdom. We experience the growing possibilities of awakening because we actually are awake more and more. So it's not theoretical, it's not abstract. We find ourselves in wakefulness more and more frequently. This gives us a sense of path. The fact that our lives are actually moving along a path. Sense of meaningful direction. There's a powerful combination of presence and path. Presence is being grounded in the moment. A moment of seeing, a moment of hearing, a moment of thinking moment of feeling. We're grounded in the present moment. That's the sense of presence. The sense of path is that mindfulness in the moment is leading someplace. It's onward leading. But it's interesting that today in the West, kind of in spiritual and New Age circles. Having goals in spiritual practice really, I think, have come under some fire. You know, and there's a lot of talk about no goals, and goals are not good, and they just be in the moment, and everything is just in the moment, which on one level, of course, is true. And that I say that criticism of goal has been corrective. 
you know, in some useful way. It's corrective for ambitious self-striving. It's corrective for that judgmental comparing mind, which is so familiar. We get so goal-oriented, and then we really lose our sense of presence. But it also loses something, and it loses something of immense value. Because it's the intimation of a goal, whether we call it Buddhahood or the goal of awakening or liberation, the intimation of something more complete, more more full, which can impart a tremendous ardency and passion in our practice. There's a a nice um, teaching in a book called Mount Analog, which was written by René Domal, and it's it's kind of a spiritual metaphor. It's a journey up a mountain. So he uses this image of the mountain to represent the journey that we're on. He He wrote, keep your eye fixed on the way to the top, but don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends upon the first. Don't think you've arrived just because you've glimpsed the summit. Watch your step. But don't let that distract you from the highest goal because the first step depends upon the last. And I think that captures something so important. The last step does depend upon the first. We have to just be right here and take step after step. But the first step also depends on the last. It's our vision of what's possible. It's our vision of awakening, our vision of liberation, our faith in that, that brings tremendous energy to our undertaking. There's no contradiction between resting in the present and having a goal. It's not a problem if it's held correctly. Every time you get up from your seat, you're going someplace. You have some notion of a goal, of where you're going to walk, going for a cup of tea. You can have the goal, and it actually sets the direction but you're right there in what you're doing. You're aware of yourself standing, of turning, of stepping. What this points to is the amazing power of intention. When there's a strong intention in the mind, it leads us to the T-urn, leads us to whatever physical destination we have. The power of intention leads to a myriad of karmic destinations. Why do we end up where we do in life? Because of the power of those intentions in the mind. The power of intention can lead all the way to Buddhahood. Presence and path, unified. In this journey of understanding ourselves, when this is our path of greater understanding, that the great circularity of our lives begins to take on some meaning. I'm sure in your ordinary lives, you must have often had the feeling, where is it all going? You know, we wake up in the morning and we brush our teeth and have breakfast and go to work and do our job and relate to people, come home and have dinner and maybe meditate and relax and play and do whatever we do, get into bed next morning, get up in the morning, have breakfast. But what's the point? You know, it just seems to be going around and around in a circle. Now just think of the growing mass of humanity on this planet. 
which often seems to be heading towards disaster, and often disasters happen on this planet, and each one of us heading towards death, inevitably, and all of this happening on one small planet around a medium-sized star in one galaxy of hundreds of billions of galaxies, what does it all mean? Does it mean anything? Are our lives onward leading in any way? When we have the strong faith, not in a physical destination, and not in, not in time, but when we have strong faith, in a deepening understanding, a deepening wisdom, a deepening sense of freedom, then every action in our lives takes on meaning. Because it's not about getting something, it's about understanding. So with every action in our lives, with every situation in our lives, in every moment, we need to ask ourselves, am I awake to this moment? Is there suffering here? What are the causes of that suffering? Each moment becomes a vehicle for a growing wisdom. These are not theoretical questions. You know, Buddhism, it's, it's really not about philosophy. There is a great philosophical you know, structure, but that's not what it's about. It's not what the Buddha was teaching. He was teaching about the vital questions in our lives. Questions of birth and death, of suffering and freedom. In that context, everything we do, every moment of our experience takes on meaning. What is this? How is it happening? How am I relating? Is the mind free? Is it contracted? How does it get contracted? So the quality of faith, which really keeps us open to what is beyond our present level of understanding. So we don't get fixed, we don't get tight around wherever we are. It helps us to not get stuck along the way. And especially in intensive meditation practice, this is so important. Countless times in my practice, I'd be going along and I'd be having some wonderful experience. <sighs> this is it. I got it. Yeah, and not just once <laughs> or twice. The seduction of that is amazingly powerful. Here it's really useful to distinguish faith from belief. It's a very helpful distinction because belief draws conclusions. It fixes our view, it fixes our opinion, and we see the inevitable conflicts that arise out of beliefs. Now, the ideological wars that have caused so much suffering in the world have come from belief. Faith does not draw conclusions. Faith is that quality of openness. It's openness to the mystery. It's not holding on to fixed conclusions. One point, this was early on in my practice. I was in India in Bodh Gaya. Staying in this place... Burmese Vihar, and there was an open roof, a flat roof, where I used to like to do the walking meditation. And I had been really struggling, and you know, lifting, moving, placing, hour after hour, struggling to be mindful. And, and then one evening, I was just doing it, and all of a sudden, the whole subject-object dichotomy fell away. And I was like, that whole dualistic sense of observer and observed completely dissolved and there was just 
the freedom of spontaneous knowing. You know, and just whatever I did, the knowing was there, and it was just it was fantastic. I started kind of dancing around the roof, and whatever I did, the knowing was there effortlessly and spontaneously. And of course, my mind immediately thought, great, this is it. This is how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I went running to Manindra. You know, I got it. And all he said to me was, don't recondition your mind. You know, don't create another concept that this is it, because that very concept is the contraction, is the attachment. Trungpa Rinpoche had a wonderful response to the teachings. I don't know whether this is, goes back quite a way, but I guess it was in the 70s when Werner Erhardt was you know, leading the, the EST seminars. And part of those seminars, the, the, the heart of it was getting it. You know, and if you paid your money and you went to your weekend, and if you were lucky, you got it. <laughs> well, Trungpa Rinpoche had a great response to that. To that. He said, it is an it. <laughs> <laughs> Because as soon as we create a concept or a fixed notion about our experience, whatever the, no matter how wonderful or freeing the experience might be, it's really not, this is not a, about a comment really about the experience. It's about the mind's tendency to fix, to create a belief about it, to create an idea. That's when the mind is already stuck again. Faith. And this is the great beauty of faith as a quality, trust or confidence. It's not a belief. It's not a conclusion. It's the quality of openness. It allows us to rest in the openness and go through all of these experiences staying open, not clinging, not holding on, whatever it is. And that's the great power, the great sustaining power that faith brings to our practice us, it holds us in openness. These hard qualities of faith or trust or confidence, that, that quality of openness, they are powers in the mind. And the Buddha talked of it as a spiritual power. There's an example given of a, of a magical gem that when you drop into water has the power to settle all the impurities. Well, the Buddha likened faith to that magical gem. When faith is strong, that sense of trust in the openness, say in a way trust in the mystery of the unfolding, it settles all the doubt, all the confusion. It has a power for us. And the Buddha called faith and the other wholesome mind states, in the Abhidhamma, in the Buddhist psychology, he called them the beautiful states. Because there is a quality of beauty when these factors, these qualities are strong in our hearts, in our minds. There is a beauty to it. It's as if we create an inner environment of stillness, of openness, of peacefulness. We can appreciate it both in ourselves and in others. You know, sometimes, especially in Asia, where very often this quality of faith, very, very often, and especially in the women, is so beautiful. And you see people practicing with this quality of devotion, and one of our teachers, Deepama, you know, who I'm sure you've heard us speak about a lot, just the most wonderful and powerful being, very simple, very loving. She was here once, and uh, actually she came here twice to IMS, 
we have a picture of her, and I remember when we took it. She had come into the hall and was just like bowing to the Buddha. And the quality that was so visible, you know, in that bowing, the faith was so shining and simple, un- completely uncontrived and completely unselfconscious. It was like love bowing to love, you know, and wisdom bowing to wisdom. And there was this incredible grace and beauty in that. Well, that's the power, you know. And we may not be at that level yet, but that's the direction, that's the potential of faith within us. In a somewhat less sublime way, kind of a more ordinary way, I experienced the very pragmatic fruits of faith very early in my practice. I was in India at this Burmese Vihar. It was in the first year or two that I was there, going through all the struggles that people go through in my mind. Incredible emotional swings and ups and downs and discomfort in the body and restlessness. And I was depressed and what am I doing? And all of all of that stuff. But somehow, I had very strong faith. I didn't have doubt, even with all the, you know, all the difficulties. And I remember telling myself, Joseph, just surrender to the Dharma. Your job is to sit and walk. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. You do your job. And just that simple, I mean, that's a very simple expression of faith. Joseph, shut up. (laughs) Sit and walk. (laughs) It really helped. It it helped me just get through, ride the waves. You know, whatever was happening, I knew what I had to do. And that faith sustained the effort and sustained the energy. You know, over all those months and years. I'd like to kind of close closing part of the talk about something which we don't talk much about in this tradition and which is actually quite new in my practice. About ten years ago, nine years ago, I was giving talks at the Harvard Divinity School, just a series of two or three talks, and somebody came up to me after one of the talks, and asked me about the place of prayer in practice, the place of prayer in Buddhism. And at that time, I really didn't have much experience of prayer. You know, in my practice, I really hadn't done it. And so I gave kind of the usual, or at least my understanding, of the Theravada explanation of, yes, you know, the monks do chant, but it's, basically the recitation of the teachings, you know, which serve as a reminder. Well, in the context of the Harvard Divinity School, I don't think that was such a satisfying reply. Soon after that, when I first began a little bit of my exploration of Tibetan practice, and in Tibetan and other schools of Buddhism, of course, prayer plays a very important role. Over time, I really began to appreciate what prayer was about, what it meant, as I began to incorporate aspects of it in my practice. It works in many ways. You know, prayer can be the practice of devotion and gratitude to great beings, to the Buddhas, to the Bodhisattvas, to all those who have helped us. The prayers prayers of gratitude. They can be a request of blessings from these beings. When I'm on retreat now, when I'm on my own retreat, what I do at the beginning of the day, and I'm not suggesting you necessarily do this, but just to give you an idea of a possibility, I create in my mind what I call a refuge tree, and I think of all my teachers, starting from my very first 
teacher, Manindraji, and then all the teachers I've had throughout all the years, all the way up to the Buddha. You know, and I think of each one, and I think of kind of their unique quality and how they touched me and helped me in their own particular way. And I think of them in that way, each one, all up to the Buddha. Then at the end, I kind of hold this whole refuge tree, and it is in asking for blessings. Ask your blessings for one's highest aspiration in practice, whatever that may be. May you grant your blessings for the attainment of awakening, for the attainment whatever. And there's a wonderful sense of connection that goes beyond time and space and birth and death. It's, it's as if it helps us enter into a whole different field, which I found very powerful. Prayer can be a prayer of aspiration for the world. You know, when we do metta practice, really it's a prayer of loving wishes. I wanted to read one that uh, the Dalai Lama offered when he was teaching in Central Park in New York a few years ago. There were, I don't know, 40, 50, 60,000 people there. It was an amazing event. The Dalai Lama was there. And this is the prayer he offered and shared with us. It's an example of prayer as an aspiration for the well-being all people. said, may the poor find wealth, those weak with sorrow find joy, may the forlorn find new hope, constant happiness and prosperity, may the frightened cease to be afraid, and those bound be free, may the weak find strength, and may their hearts join in friendship. Very simple. Basic prayer of goodwill has power because our minds have power. Most deeply, prayer becomes a way of recognizing the nature of our own minds. We see that our own minds and those to whom we're praying are inseparable. We start on a very relative level, relating to someone outside of ourselves. But in that space of devotion, in that space of faith, it quickly connects us to the very nature of our own minds. Connects us to that zero, empty, selfless center out of which everything emerges. I'll read one thing which, which many of you have heard. It's, <laughs> it's such a wonderful description of prayer, though. It's from Mother Teresa. She was asked by an interviewer what she says to God when she prays. I don't say anything, she replied. I just listen. So the interviewer asked her what God says to her. He doesn't say anything, said Mother Teresa. He just listens. And she added, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. (laughs) (laughs) And I just love it, just kind of... It's not two. It's just openness. It's just listening. With the awakening and deepening of faith in our lives, we actually have the energy. It gives us the energy. It arouses the energy to bring our practice and to bring our lives into alignment with our highest aspirations. Because what makes that connection? Now we can have 
an idea, we can have an aspiration of what we most value, or what gives us the energy to accomplish it. It's just amazing and beautiful. And in many ways, passionate quality of faith. And this is what sustains us through all the many ups and downs of our practice and the many great changes from happiness to suffering and happiness and peace to violence in the world. This quality of faith that holds it all. Let's close with It's a favorite poem which at one point or another we often read on retreat. It's it's a non-Buddhist poem. But it just I think conveys the great beauty of faith, of trust. By Wendell Berry called The Peace of Wild Things. I think it's particularly appropriate in these times. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in night, in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and I'm free. Let's rest for a few moments in the grace of the world. really an amazing blessing to have this time of silence and solitude. So enjoy.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.